Have you been lifted by God's love in your life today, I hope and pray? Well, I've got an announcement for you. I haven't said it in a while, so it needs to be said again. God loves you. God loves you. Sorry, there's nothing you can do about it. God loves you. You know, announcements are interesting uh, in how they've changed even over time uh, throughout history. There was a time when a person would stand in the streets of Rome and they would stand out and uh, give like public address announcements uh, accompanied by commercials, literally. This message has been brought to you by the Miller's Association down who makes your clothing down on the river. And in the medieval period, you'd have the town crier who'd come out with bells and hear ye, hear ye, right? With a, a royal decree or message from the king. And today, we, of course, have Twitter and all sorts of other ways. Messages come to us and announcements come in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. And they're accompanied by a lot of different responses, right? Um, if you're a sports fan, a basketball fan in particular, you will probably remember just a few years ago when LeBron James was uh, making a decision. He had been drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers and his contract was at an end. Uh, still, I mean, entering into the prime of his playing career and he was about to make a decision. Where would he play next? And he called the cameras together in his press conference and he said what's now for many uh, a famous line, I plan to take my talents to South Beach, right? He was heading away from Cleveland into Miami. So there was an anticipate in the sports world, there's great anticipation for that announcement about where LeBron James would play next. Sometimes announcements come with shock. A few decades ago, when the announcement began to uh, ripple out of Dallas that the president had been shot, it met with great shock and surprise. There are other times, perhaps when a baby is born, parents love to send out announcements, or even when weddings are coming, uh, and those are met with great joy and thrill. We still have the wedding announcement for Chris and Nikki hanging in... Did you know this, Nikki? We still have this on our bulletin board in the office. But it's a save the date because a wedding is upcoming. And those types of announcements are uh, usually met with great joy and, and happiness. Uh, we get all of these sort of responses merged in different ways into the passage uh, that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 4. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, as we've been looking at some passages of Luke, Jesus is now about to make an announcement. And all the eyes in the synagogue are fixed on Him in great anticipation. For some, the words that He's about to say will leave them utterly shocked. There would be others. The ripple effect would be a response of great joy. Let's hear what God says in Luke chapter 4. Jesus, remember last week we just looked at the way Luke lays it out. is He's just come back from His temptation. And remember the question was being asked of, of Jesus, or Luke was trying to, to paint a picture pointing us to something in the temptation. Remember that uh, people throughout history had always failed in the face of temptation. They had always given into temptation. It happened in the Garden of Eden. 
The whole of the Old Testament is a description in some ways of a people who were utterly incapable of uh, always being successful in standing up in the face of temptation. And so the question comes, when the, the chosen one of God, the Messiah, arrives on the scene, one of the questions that has to be answered is, could he stand up and be successful in the face of temptation? Because if he couldn't, then he too would be a sinner like you and me. And if he too is a sinner, then he cannot die in our place, and he cannot be the one who can take sin away. So it's a very important passage in our theological understanding of, of the importance of Jesus and what He came to do. But Jesus, it says in verse 14 of Luke 4, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The temptation is now behind Him. He successfully overcame it. And news about Jesus spread through the whole countryside. Can you imagine the whispers going on? Hey, you'll never believe what Jesus did. In this village over here, you won't believe the amazing way he speaks, the authority. He taught in their synagogues and everywhere everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In verse 20, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Oh, the anticipation. And he began by saying to them, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then some negative comments. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus continued, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet None of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. God, we pray that your Spirit would come and add to these words, um, we thank you for um, your speaking to us, and I pray that, that my speaking now would be your voice in some way to these hearts and ears and to mine as well. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. Uh, two things I want to focus on this morning that we 
are to take from this particular passage. Kind of big, big overview ideas. Number one is that Jesus comes in order to usher in a new era. He's ushering in a new era. And then number two is that Jesus is both anointed one of God and the rejected one of many people. The anointed one and the rejected one. So number one, Jesus comes in the new era to usher in a new era, a new epoch of history. And His coming is more than just a cultural fad. Um, it's interesting uh, how fads work. Uh, clothing fads come and go, don't they, all the time? I was even admiring. I'm wearing today. I hadn't planned to share this till just now. So uh, the tie I'm wearing uh, is a tie I've had since high school. And uh, what I've noticed uh, with even the design of ties over the years is how sometimes they get broader. And I, I laid this against a tie that I just bought two weeks ago. And guess what? It's identical in size and length and width. And it's not always that way, but it's interesting how fashion rolls around and fads come and go. And uh, how many of you remember or have seen pictures of poodle skirts from the 1950s? How many of you owned a poodle skirt? Wow, it's all right. Uh, how about the 1970s? You remember bell-bottom pants? That's um, not just in the 70s. That's kind of a recurring uh, theme these days. In my, my high school years growing up in the 1980s, you know what people wore so much? And I'm seeing it again, a return uh, of leg warmers. Uh, just It was so amazing. And, and I'm even beginning to see these bright fluorescent colors coming back that I never thought would ever be in fashion again. But they are. They're popular again. What about hairstyles? Back in the 1920s, right, the short bob haircut was so in vogue and so awesome for so many people. Uh, where I grew up, uh, bangs, especially in women, were a big deal. And I mean, it, both in importance and in size. Uh, bangs were really important. Mullets in my area of the country were really important in the time I grew up. In fact, believe it or not, there was a season when guys would let their hair grow long I'm not, I don't think this happened in California. You guys, you, California just missed the cool trends. I'm teasing. But there was a time when guys would let their hair grow long in the back, and then they would go and they'd perm just the back of it. Does anybody remember that? I, 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 honestly, I thank the Lord that it was a short-lived fad. <laughs> I was blessed because I didn't have to make a decision. When I let my hair grow, because I was a mullet wearer for a while, uh, but my hair was naturally curly, so I didn't have to pay the money for a perm. I, I got everything. I was in fashion without all the expense. It was, it was amazing. But fads come and go, don't they? If you add the letter E on the end of fad, what word do you get? Fade. Because fads end up fading away, don't they? They come and go. They're fun for a little while, but they don't really last, even though you might see them recycle over time. Jesus, you see, He is announcing that He is coming and He is ushering in a whole new era. It's not a fad because what happens to fads? They fade away. Jesus doesn't come to stir up a fad or to stir up some uh, little local movement that would be lived for a decade or until He died, or a few years after that, maybe the generation after He died would continue on, and then things would peter out. No, no. Jesus comes and He's announcing in part that He is ushering in a whole new era, not a fad that will simply fade away. Uh, it is a, it, an opportunity that this era is the one that God has promised for many years, 
that there would come a day when his special one would come and with him this new era would arrive on the world stage. Uh, Theologians like to call this, or some call it, inaugurated eschatology. It's got a lot of syllables in it, I know. But inaugurated eschatology, eschatology is a study of what happens at the end at the end of all things, you know, the, the Bible talks about that this world isn't going to just keep on going forever and ever. That God has in mind, and He knows the time when there will be an end to things as we know it. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a day that's coming. We don't know when. In fact, uh, believe, uh, those who would uh, tout this idea of inaugurated eschatology would say that when Jesus came, announcing that this new era arrived that the end had begun. You see, the end times, I don't think, is some, something we're waiting for to begin somewhere in the future. When just the right uh, element falls into place, then we are suddenly in the new times, of the end times. It seems to me, at least, could be wrong, but the end times actually began in the coming of Jesus because the, the final era of the world was launched and inaugurated with His coming. It's sort of the idea that that God's kingdom was now visibly planted among the church of God because of Jesus. So it's already here, but it's not quite yet. It's already, but not yet. It's already here, but it's not yet in its fullness as it will be one day. It's already here. The kingdom of God is here. New life is known in Jesus. It's already here. It's accessible to you and to me. It's here, but there's still pain, and there's still suffering, and there's still heartache, and there's still sin, and there's still evil in the world because it's not fully accomplished and fulfilled. So the end times were inaugurated in the coming of Jesus. The new era had arrived, and it's already here, but it's not yet fully as it will be one day. That's the great wait and patience for the Christian is that one day there is a day that is coming that will be much better than what it is today. Jesus came to usher in a new era. He described His ministry out of the words of Isaiah, words that were spoken to those in exile, away from their homeland and the place that they loved. And now Jesus takes these same words and He says, this is my ministry. It's a ministry of healing. It's a ministry to the brokenhearted. It's a ministry to those who are wrapped up and chained up and imprisoned by the effect of sin. And I have come to set people free. 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 It's a ministry of jubilee. In verse 19, when it describes, the, he says, the year, the, to proclaim, I have come. The, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That, that's a reference to the Old Testament idea of the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, or 7 times 7 years, 49 years plus 1, uh, every 50 years, the idea is that everything socially that had gotten out of whack people who were indebted, people who had lost their lands, some were who were enslaved every 50 years, guess what? Everything gets restored. Everything that is out of whack gets put back right again. And Jesus is saying in this new era that the Spirit of God is on me in part to come and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. The new era has begun in Jesus and it will be finalized when Jesus returns Again, And that day is coming. It could be today. Imagine watching the Super Bowl and all of a sudden Jesus shows up. 
Could you imagine? It could be a thousand years from now. I don't know. I don't think we're supposed to know. We're just supposed to be ready. Every day. We live a life that's ready. We're ready for the return of the King. Jesus was coming to announce that the new era had begun. And number two is that Jesus is both the one who is anointed by God, but oft rejected by people. He is anointed. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Luke has gone to great pains just in these first three plus chapters to describe how Jesus is the anointed one. He goes to great lengths talking about the birth narrative and the coming of Jesus at Christmas and then uh, coming to uh, Jesus coming into the earth, uh, born of a virgin Mary and all of the, the wild uh, things that must have God must have done to make that happen. And then we see how uh, the Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And we see uh, he's gone to great lengths to describe in chapter 3 the family tree of Jesus so that we could see, ah, when Jesus has come, I can actually trace through Ancestry.com, I can trace that Jesus really is connected to Abraham And God had made a promise so long ago to Abraham that through his line, eventually somebody would come. And so Luke is going to great pains to demonstrate to us that Jesus is the anointed one. At his baptism, the Bible describes that that the heavens open up and the voice of heaven, the Father, thunders down and the, the Spirit descends like a dove. This is my Son in whom... I am well pleased. He is anointed. And it's after that baptism that his public ministry begins. He goes from baptism to temptation, in the way Luke presents it, now to the great announcement. His time had now come to enter into his public ministry. Luke, in the next few chapters, would describe why, how Jesus is the anointed one because of the things that he would do. Not just say, but he would begin to drive demons out. He'd begin to heal the sick. He had power and authority over nature. He could calm storms. It wasn't magic. It's because he is part of the creating uh, force of the universe. Uh, The Godhead three in one speaking creation into existence. So he is the anointed one. Yet at the same time, by some hearts and lives, he's the rejected one. Listen again. Uh, Well, uh, Jesus goes on. He talks about how no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Then he offers two Old Testament references, one during the ministry and life of Elijah and one during the ministry and life of Elisha. And the the issue is that Jesus is in a Jewish synagogue and he's speaking to Jewish people and they were expecting a Messiah who is coming to rescue Jewish people. And when Jesus says... He kind of points at at how God doesn't just come and minister to a select group of people, but God was coming to minister to all people. The two stories he shares out of Elijah's life and Elisha's life isn't God's ministry to the Israelites. It was how God also ministered beyond the Israelites. Well, that didn't make this group of people happy. That's not what they were expecting in, in their Messiah. How dare he claim to be the anointed one? And then why would he bring up these stories? Stories of God's nourishment and provision. Stories of God's cleansing from leprosy. And that really is important for us today as we prepare in just a moment to take together the Lord's Supper. The idea that God feeds us spiritually. That God, through our relating to Jesus, wants to nourish your soul. And He also comes, Jesus has come, so that in Him you might know the cleansing of forgiveness.
that that which you have done that brings shame to your life, that breaks your relationship with God, can actually be dealt with and washed away. The Bible says, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. There's a lot of snow up in Truckee. The next time you head up to Tahoe area and you look around at the snow, maybe you'll remember the joy and celebrate that your sins have been washed away. If indeed you've confessed those to the Lord. He's the rejected one. Here's how the people respond. Jesus says, the, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And then He gives a statement about how God nourished and cleansed non-Israelite people. And here's what He says. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up. They drove Him out of town. Took Him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw Him down the cliff. And in great Jesus style, what's He do? Somehow, <laughs> He just walks through them. <laughs> this is so great. I'd love to have been there to watch. How did that happen? I don't know. But we know He had a great life and ministry beyond that. One of the things I've asked myself, Lord, what, what is it that I should recognize for myself out of this and the people's response is that I know for me at least it's unlikely that I'm in a season of vibrant relating to Jesus if I regularly come and encounter Jesus in the Gospels and I'm not occasionally sort of uh, troubled by some things that He says or does, that if I'm not entering into the Scripture and God's Spirit isn't meeting me there and sometimes stirring my heart and pointing out areas of my life that are incomplete, patterns of my life that are not healthy or productive or helpful, that are out of sequence and out of whack and out of step with the way God would have me live. You see, we need to have regular times in the Scripture where we hear and see Jesus do things and it troubles us. That's, that's part of what spurs us on to spiritual growth is not only being embraced by a comforting, loving hand, but a God who wants to develop your life. A God who wants to shape you. And shaping means that you change. It means that you were once like this and now you're shaped into something new. So there are occasions, and don't fear the occasions, when you encounter something in the Scripture that troubles you. Let it be an invitation to study, an invitation to question, an invitation to talk with others about it, and let God do the shaping work that He desires to do through His Word. The Holy Spirit wants to work in you. You see, when you receive Jesus, He adopts you into His family, and you become a son or a daughter. He is here. He is the Anointed One. He is the host of this, our Lord's Supper today. He comes and He nourishes. He comes and He feeds. He comes and He cleanses from sin. And each time we do this, it's a reminder of this announcement that Jesus made. It's a reminder of His ministry of healing, a ministry of putting that which is broken back together again. It's a reminder that his body was literally broken. His blood was literally shed. And remember, He was never one to give in to temptation so that when He was hung on the cross, He really was able to take your sin and mine into Himself. It's so You see how it all fits together? It's so important to know 
and to celebrate what Jesus has done, that you're the things that you're most ashamed of and the things that most turn you away from God, Jesus has come to take them away, to wash your life and heart clean. So this morning, if you have understood your your brokenness before the Lord and you have offered a prayer of confession, to confess just simply means, God, I agree. I agree with what you say about my life and I agree with what you say about who you are and how my broken life can be made put back together again and how that which separates me from you can be taken away and my deepest, most shameful realities of my life can be cleansed and made new because your blood was shed for me. If you've confessed that, you've received the forgiveness of Jesus, then this Lord's Supper is for you and you're invited to participate with us this day. Chris is going to help me. Let me invite the deacons to come and uh, join us here at the front. The Lord's Supper is uh, comprised of two elements. I know for many of you it needs no explanation, but it's always good to remember what we're doing and why. Because Jesus Himself, at that very first Last Supper, He sat with His disciples and He gave this first practice to us. And He said, you do this because every time you do it, it's helpful because it's a bit of a tangible reality. It's a, a touch point to help you better appreciate and understand what God has invisibly done inwardly in your life. And we have elements of bread that remind us that Jesus' real body suffered and was broken on the cross because of my sin and yours. And that His real blood was shed because the Bible reminds us that without the shedding of blood, forgiveness of sin really isn't possible. And so these these elements aren't intended to be gross, (laughs) but they're intended to be delightful for us to know that God was willing to exchange His perfect life for our sinful life so that our sinful life might be clothed, covered up with His perfection. That's the beauty of what we do and commemorate in this meal.